Let's seek the Lord in prayer. Our loving, merciful, gracious, and righteous Heavenly Father, what a wonderful privilege it is to be in your presence. There's no other place that we would want to be on a Sabbath morning than in your holy house. We thank you, Father, because you have already blessed us with your presence. And now, as we open the pages of your holy book, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit through the ministration of the angels. Open our minds and hearts to receive the word, and we thank you for answering our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1445 B.C. Israel had been delivered from bondage in Egypt, and now they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. And as they were there at the foot of Mount Sinai, God told Moses to come up on the mount because God had a special message that he wanted Moses to deliver to the people. That message is found in Exodus chapter 19 and verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to read those verses. There are several very important items of information there. Exodus 19 and verses 1 through 6. Remember that God has just delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt. This is about three months later. They're at Mount Sinai, or in the third month, rather. They're at Mount Sinai, and God tells Moses, Come up, I have a message for you to give to Israel. This is what it says. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. So God is going to give the message to Moses to give to the people. Verse 4, You have seen, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God is saying, I took you away, away from Pharaoh, and I brought you to myself. I performed this great act of deliverance from bondage. And then notice verse 5. Now therefore, if, this is a conditional word, if, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Notice, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Was the election of Israel conditional, yes or no? Absolutely, it was conditioned on their obedience to the covenant. Notice verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God is saying through Moses to Israel, I want to make a covenant with you. 
I want you to be my special people, my special treasure. I want you to be priests to the nations. I want you to share the gospel with the world. Are you willing to accept the terms of the covenant, obey my voice, and be faithful to the covenant, yes or no? And so Moses comes down and he delivers the message to Israel. Let's read Exodus 19, 7 and 8, where you find the response of Israel. Exodus 19, verses 7 and 8. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people, and told before and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, Notice, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Did they agree to enter the covenant, yes or no? Did they agree to obey God's voice and be faithful? Absolutely. And now notice verse, uh, the end of verse 8, So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And now you have a covenant. God offers the covenant on condition of obedience, and Israel says, All that the Lord has said, that we will do. Now God sealed off this covenant later on after the tabernacle was built when the Shekinah glory of God entered the sanctuary to dwell among God's people. Let's read about that in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34. Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34. This is the capstone. God and Israel have made a covenant. Now Moses builds a tabernacle and God's glory comes into the tabernacle. God is saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Exodus 40, verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so now the covenant was complete. God was in their midst, and Israel was his people. Later on, God told Solomon to build a more permanent structure for him to dwell in. This temple was built in the year 960, or it was finished in the year 960 B.C. And after the temple was built, once again, God sealed his presence with Israel by coming as the glory into Solomon's temple. Let's read that in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verses 10 and 11, how the glory of God came into Solomon's temple. By the way, that's a misnomer because it was really God's temple built by Solomon. And so it says there in 1 Kings chapter 8, and it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now it just so happens that from 1445 B.C., for a period of about 800 years, Israel was continually rebellious to God and to His covenant. Even though God sent messenger after messenger after messenger, calling Israel to be faithful, calling them back to their covenant that they had made with the Lord, 
800 years was a history of open rebellion against the Lord. Let's read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and verses 14 through 16. 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and verses 14 through 16. Here the chronicler uh, is telling the story or the history of Israel. And it says, Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations. I want you to remember that's a key word. According to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Verse 15, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So did God send messages calling them to abandon their abominations? Absolutely. How did they react to God's warnings? Verse 16, But they mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people, till there was no remedy. In fact, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai was a marriage covenant. In other words, God married Israel. He wanted Israel to be his wife. You say, where does the Bible say that? If you read the book of Ezekiel, actually Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 32, God speaking about Sinai says, I made a marriage covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. And yet prophet after prophet says that Israel played the harlot. In other words, she had other lovers because she followed the abominations of the nations. Let's read one of those texts in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 15. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 15. Here God is speaking to Israel and He says, But you trusted in your own beauty and played what? Played the harlot because of your fame and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. And so Israel practiced the abominations of the nations. She became a harlot. In other words, she broke her marriage covenant. And so the, the, the messengers or the prophets are God's uh, lawyers, so to speak, in divorce court. And God is saying, I want a divorce. I want out of this covenant because you are committing acts of abomination and harlotry with the nations. Finally, at the end of the 800 years of constant rebellion, God decided that he would come and he would judge his people for their wickedness and for their abominations. And so it was that in the year 592 B.C., According to Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 4, God came to the Jerusalem temple to perform a work of judgment there in the temple. Let's read that passage that is found in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 4 about the coming of God to the Jerusalem temple to judge His people for their abominations. It says there in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 4, Then I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, 
a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. And if you continue reading the following chapters, you'll find that this is God. He's coming from the north, and He arrives by way of the east, and He's coming to the Jerusalem temple to perform a work of judgment because of the abominations of Israel. Now, we don't have time to read from chapter 8, but the chapter uh, that really speaks about the abominations that were being committed among God's people is in Ezekiel chapter 8. God shows Ezekiel an abomination that's being committed by his own people. And uh, Ezekiel says, Lord, that's terrible. God says, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to show you a greater abomination than this. And then God shows them a greater abomination. And Ezekiel says, certainly this, there can't be anything worse than this. And God says, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to show you a greater abomination yet that's being committed among my people. And what is at the very top of the list is that the very religious leaders had their backs to the temple of God, and their faces were to the east, and they were worshiping the sun. And because Israel was committing all of these abominations, because they had broken their marriage covenant with the Lord, the Lord came to the temple, He says, I'm going to perform a work of separation of those who are righteous from those who are not righteous. And that judgment is spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 9 and verses 1 through 6. Notice what we find there, Ezekiel chapter 9 and verses 1 through 6. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city, that's Jerusalem, draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe, that's a weapon, in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen. This is Jesus Christ, the high priest. So it says there was one clothed with linen, and he had an inkhorn, writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood besides the, beside the bronze altar, which is in the court. Verse 3, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writer's inkhorn at his side, and the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, that is Jerusalem, through the midst of Jerusalem, and now notice, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Was everybody in Jerusalem practicing these abominations? No. Did those faithful ones need to be separated from the unfaithful before destruction came? Absolutely. And so it says in verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it, that is, within Jerusalem. To the others, he said, in my hearing, Go after him. In other words, after the separation is made, after the righteous are separated from the unrighteous, this is what God came for in chapter 1, was to judge Israel for their unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant. It says, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. 
utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. That is, at the temple the destruction would begin. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. After this work of judgment was finished, of separating the righteous from the unrighteous before destruction came, the Bible tells us that the Shekinah glory of God departed the temple. Notice Ezekiel chapter 10. This is where the Shekinah glory that had come in chapter 1 to perform a work of judgment now is going to leave the temple. Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 19 speaks about the departure of the glory of God from the temple after he finished the work of judgment. It says there, And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them. The wheels are the wheels of God's chariot or God's throne. And notice what it continues saying. And they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. That is the gate that faces the Mount of Olives, incidentally. And it says, And the glory of the God of Israel was above them. So notice that the glory of God departs the temple and it lingers for a few moments at the east gate of the temple, which faces the Mount of Olives. And then the glory of the Lord departs the temple, and I want you to notice where it goes. Ezekiel 11, 22 and 23. This is where the Shekinah glory departs from the eastern gate of the temple and goes somewhere. Remember all of this because we're going to come back to it later on in our study. Notice Ezekiel chapter 11 and verses 22 and 23. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And now notice, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. Is the glory forsaking the city now? Absolutely. So it says, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. And now notice a very important detail. And what? Stood on the mountain, in other words, it lingers on the mountain, which is where? On the east side of the city. Which mountain is that where the glory of God rests for a little while? It is on the Mount of Olives. Don't forget that because that's very, very important. In other words, the Shekinah glory, which had been in the temple, which was a symbol of God's presence, now moves to the east gate of the temple. It is leaving the temple. It lingers at the east gate, and then it moves, and it stands for a few moments upon the Mount of Olives, the Mount East of Jerusalem. And then it takes off, and it departs to heaven. The Shekinah glory of God has forsaken the city. And do you know what happens to the city now? Go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and verses 17 through 21. The abominations led to desolation. Are you following me? Have you ever heard that expression, abomination of desolation? The abominations of Israel led to the desolation of the city of Jerusalem. Let's read about it. 
It says there in 2 Chronicles 36 verse 17, Therefore, because of their wickedness, He brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young men or virgin, on the aged or the weak. Remember we read this when we were talking about the sealing in chapter 9? It continues saying, He gave them all into His hand. And all the articles from the house of the Lord, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon. Was Jerusalem desolated? Why was it desolated? Because of their what? Their abominations. Because they were unfaithful to God's covenant. Now, the question is, was Jerusalem going to be desolated forever? Absolutely not. Let's go to verse 20 again. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became his servants to him and his sons, now notice carefully, until... Was this captivity going to end? Absolutely. Until the rule of the kingdom of what? Of Persia. Those who are coming to the sanctuary lectures will be able to understand this a lot better, the historical framework. Verse 21. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths as long as she lay desolate. There's the word desolate. See, when the city was destroyed, it was desolate. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill how long? To fulfill 70 years. So here you have the first stage of the history of Israel. A first stage that begins in 1445 when the covenant is made. Israel is rebellious for a period of 800 years. So God withdraws the Shekinah from the temple, it rests on the Mount of Olives, then leaves to heaven, the city and the temple now are abandoned by the Shekinah, and therefore the abominations lead to desolation. But we notice that God was going to give Israel another chance. A second stage of Israel's history, after the captivity, after Persia came to rule, after Babylon. Now let's examine this second stage of Israel's history. 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and verses 22 and 23. 2 Chronicles 36, 22 and 23. You see, Israel was restored to their land after the 70-year captivity, and they went back to reestablish their religion and eventually their government or the theocracy. It says there, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that is the 70 years, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me, this is amazing for a pagan king, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. What was he commanded to do? To build Jerusalem? No, to build him what? 
uh, house. That's very important. We'll study that a little bit more in our next lecture. Who is among you of all his people, asks Cyrus, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him what? And let him go up. And so about 50,000 Jews return after the 70-year captivity to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple as Cyrus had said that they could do. But then they ran into troubles. You see, the Samaritans were opposed to them rebuilding the temple. And so for about 16 years, they ceased building the temple, and they were all concerned about building their own homes and beautifying their own homes. You can read this in the book of Haggai. But then Haggai and Zechariah and some other prophets arose, and they said, folks, let's get down to business. Cyrus has given the decree that we can build the house of the Lord. Let's get with it and do it. And so from the year 520 to the year 515, the temple was built. And in the year 515, the temple was dedicated. But that temple had a serious problem. Notice Haggai chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. You see, the Shekinah glory did not come into that temple after the temple was finished. Notice Haggai chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you? There were some people who were still alive who had seen Solomon's temple or the temple built by Solomon. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? In other words, compared to Solomon's temple, this house is nothing. And yet Haggai made a promise, a promise that the Jews to this day are still trying to understand. Haggai chapter 2 and verses 6 through 9. Haggai chapter 2 verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the what? They shall come to the desire of all nations. Actually, most versions translate the desire of all nations will come. It's not people coming to the desire of all nations. It's the desire of all nations coming to the people. So anyway, it says, and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come. And now notice, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. He's saying, don't worry about all the silver and gold that you had in the first temple that you don't have in this temple. Notice verse 9. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The fact is that second temple, at least outwardly, never reached the glory that the temple built by Solomon had. And so the Jews have never been able to explain this particular prophecy. Because the Shekinah, according to their way of looking at, looking at it, never actually came into the temple. Now let me ask you, after the captivity, did God send additional messengers to Israel to try and woo them back to the covenant? Absolutely. He sent individuals such as Haggai, Zechariah, Joshua, Zerubbabel, 
Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, and eventually John the Baptist. This second period of Israel's history is the period of the 70 weeks. After the captivity, God's people come back to Jerusalem, they rebuild the city, and they rebuild the temple, and then God says, now I'm going to give you a second period of probation. And that second period of probation is the period of the 70 weeks. And God says, sends abundant messengers to Israel during this period. But the question is, how did Israel react to this second opportunity that God gave to them during the period of the 70 weeks. Actually, when Jesus came, the Bible tells us he came to his own, and his own received him not. They were oblivious to what Jesus was going to do. In other words, they did not take advantage of all of the additional messengers that God sent to them during the per period of the 70 weeks that they might live up to the terms of the covenant. And so now we come to the third stage of Israel's history. The third stage of Israel's history is actually when Jesus comes in the last week of the prophecy of the 70 weeks. You see, God gave them 483 years until the coming of the Messiah to shape up, to get ready for the coming of the Messiah, were they ready when the Messiah came? No. So then the Messiah comes, the third stage of Israel's history. And I want you to notice what we find in John chapter 1 and verse 14. Here is how the Bible explains that prophecy of Haggai that tells us that the latter temple would have more glory than the first temple. Notice John 1 and verse 14. And the Word became flesh, and what? And dwelt among us. Don't forget that. The Word became what? Flesh, and what? Dwelt among us. And then it says, And we beheld, what? His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you remember when God told Moses to build a temple? He says, let them build me a tabernacle that I might dwell among them. And then the Shekinah glory came into that temple. Let me ask you, who was the glory that came into this temple that was built after the captivity? It was Jesus Christ. You have the common words. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word, actually the word dwelt, is a word that uh, means he tabernacled. You know, the Jews were always bragging about what Solomon's temple was like. Always reminiscing about the great days, the good old days. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, 27 and 28, Jesus said to them, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now in the Gospel of Matthew, he, Jesus adds something that is not found in Luke. After saying, Look at the lilies of the field, they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Then Jesus goes on to say, 
in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, yet one greater than Solomon is here. Speaking about himself, but they did not recognize it. They did not see the glory. Question, did Jesus teach many times there in the temple of Jerusalem? He most certainly did. He was the Shekinah glory in the temple. In fact, let's notice in the Bible the last visit that Jesus made to the temple. Go with me to Luke chapter 19 and verses 37 and 38. Now remember what we studied in the book of Ezekiel because we're going to come back to this, you see. Ezekiel is talking about the first destruction of Jerusalem. Now we're going to talk about the second destruction of Jerusalem and why it was destroyed. Luke 19, 37 and 38, here Jesus is descending from the Mount of Olives and he's going to go into Jerusalem through the Golden Gate, through the Eastern Gate. The Shekinah is going to go into the temple for the last time. Notice what we find in Luke 19, 37 and 38. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace! in heaven and glory in the highest. Remember that Haggai had said that I will give what? Peace in this place. And so they're singing. This is the triumphal entry, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But do you know what the religious leaders did when they saw Jesus coming in triumphantly into Jerusalem? Luke 19, 47 and 48. See, if it hadn't been for the religious leaders, the people would have accepted Jesus Christ. But the leaders were constantly working at cross purposes with Jesus. Luke 19, 47 and 48. Listen, and as he was teaching daily where? In the temple, the living Shekinah. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to what? To destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Where was the problem, with the religious leaders or with the people? It was with the religious leaders. They wanted to destroy him, and he was the living Shekinah teaching in the temple, according to Scripture. Now let's notice Matthew 21, when Jesus actually enters the temple. Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13. Very important verse, or very important verses. It says here, Remember, he's descended from the Mount of Olives. He's gone through the Golden Gate, through the Eastern Gate. He's moved to the temple. The religious leaders, they don't want anything to do with him. They want to destroy him. And now Jesus enters the temple. Notice, verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God. Very important phrase. What was, what was the temple at that time? It was still what? It was still God's temple. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, now listen carefully, it is written, my house, what did Jesus call the temple? This was, this was God's temple, and he says, this is my house, shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a what? A den of thieves. And now listen up. As Jesus is in the temple, he begins to teach a series of parables, very interesting parables. And do you know what he describes in these parables? He describes the history 
of Israel. The sad history of Israel as he teaches in the courts of the temple. One of those parables, it's an active parable that Jesus referred to, was the story of the fig tree. You remember the cursing of the fig tree? All of the parables of Jesus had to do with the rebellion of Israel and how he was trying to woo them back. You know, you remember Jesus saw a fig tree in the distance? And he says to his disciples, hey, let's go see if we can get some figs from that tree. I'm hungry. Do you know what the fig tree represented? All scholars, in harmony with the Old Testament, says, say that the fig tree represents Israel. And so Jesus goes, and he looks at the tree, and the tree has all kinds of leaves, not, but not one fig. And what did Jesus do with the fig tree? He cursed the fig tree, and the Bible tells us that after he cursed the fig tree, it dried up by its roots. Let's read Matthew 21, verses 18 and 19. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Was this fig tree ever going to bear fruit? Never. In fact, the parallel passage in Mark says that it dried up from its roots. What happens when a tree dries up from its roots? That is it. And so he says, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately, the fig tree what? The fig tree withered away. Was probation going to close without remedy for the nation of Israel as a result of rejecting the Messiah? Absolutely. This acted parable clearly illustrates that God's plan would come to an end for the literal Jewish nation or the Jewish theocracy. Now, in the temple, Jesus taught another parable. It's the parable of the vine dressers, and I want you to see the three stages of Israel's history in this parable. Go with me to Matthew chapter 21 and verses 33 through 43. Matthew 21, verse 33 through 43. And I'm going to interpret this parable as we go along. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner, the landowner is God the Father, who planted a vineyard. The vineyard is the city of Jerusalem. And set a hedge around it. That's the law. Dug a wine press in it and built a tower. That's the temple. And he leased it to vine dressers. Who are the vine dressers? Israel. And went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants. Notice this is the first group of servants. How many stages does Israel's history have? It has three. Notice, now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants, these are like Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, the prophets that came before the exile, to the vine dressers, that they might receive what? It's fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So you say, that's it. No, that's not it. There's a second stage. Again, he sent other servants. This is after the captivity. And that's people like Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, John the Baptist, etc. So he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And now notice, then last of all, does this have a sense of finality to it? That this is it? Absolutely. Last of all, he sent his son. Who is that? 
Jesus to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard. Out of where? Jerusalem. Jesus died outside Jerusalem and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus asks the question, what will he do to those vine dressers? They are oblivious to what Jesus is talking about, but they're going to condemn themselves. Verse 41, they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. And then notice what Jesus says. As a result of killing the Son, He says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be what? Will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. What is that nation that bears the fruits thereof? It is the Gentiles. The word nation there is the word ethne. Generally in the New Testament, when Israel is spoken of, it's Laos. That's God's people. But this is the word ethne, where we get our word ethnic from. In other words, Jesus is saying, because you did not respond to the first call, you didn't respond to the second call, and you actually destroyed the son in the third call, last of all, he said, that's it. I'm going to give my, my vineyard to others who will produce the fruit thereof. And the message was going to go to the Gentiles. Do you know there's another parable that Jesus taught in the temple that's similar to this one. It's found in Matthew 22 and verses uh, 1 through 14. Uh, you know, when I did the robe series at 3 ABN, I preached a whole sermon on Matthew 22, 1 through 14. It's a fascinating parable. It gives the same idea. There it says that messengers were sent out to invite a people to the wedding. And they said, no thanks. So then uh, the fatted calf is prepared, which re refers to the death of Jesus Christ. And they reject the call again. And so... The message is given, now you go to the highways and to the byways and compel everyone that you can to come in. That's the call to the Gentiles. In other words, another parable that Jesus taught in the temple deals with the fact that the kingdom would be taken from the Jewish nation, from the Jewish theocracy, and it would be given to the Gentiles. Let's go to Matthew 23, 29 to 33. Jesus is still in the temple, and now he's coming to the last remarks that he's going to make in the temple before leaving. Notice Matthew chapter 23 and verses 29 to 33. These are the woes on the religious leaders, on the scribes and on the Pharisees. It says there, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Of course, they're, they're planning on killing Jesus. And he continues saying, Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then he says, Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. What does that mean, fill up the measure? The cup is going to be what? full. Do you know what that means? It simply means that their iniquity is complete. 
Remember in Genesis chapter uh, 15, verse 16, it says the, the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, so they couldn't enter the promised land because they had not sinned their, their day of grace away. By the way, in Revelation chapter 16, it speaks about seven last plagues, and the cups have the fullness of the wrath of God. That means that they are unmixed with what? With mercy. And then Jesus says in verse 33, serpents, wow, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? But you know what's interesting? Even though this is happening a couple of days before the death of Jesus, there were still three and a half years probation that Jesus was going to give to the Jewish nation even after he was crucified. Because the 70 weeks don't end when Jesus was crucified. The 70 weeks end in the year 34, three and a half years later. So even after they kill Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to send you more messengers. You might call this a fourth stage of the history of Israel, although really it's part of the third because it's part of the 70 weeks. You say, where does Jesus say that? Matthew 23, verses 34 to 36. Matthew 23, verses 34 through 36. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Prophet was Stephen, we're going to notice. The wise men, the seven deacons are called wise men. In other words, he sends additional messengers after the crucifixion of Jesus. Some of them, this is future, notice, some of them you what? You will kill and crucify. See, this is future from that point. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues, like they did with uh, Peter and John in Acts chapter 2 and 3. And persecute from city to city. Who was it that persecuted from city to city? Saul of Tarsus. And now notice, because you treat these messengers, these last messengers in this way, notice that the cup is full. Verse 35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Is this the end? of the Hebrew theocracy. Absolutely. Now, Jesus finishes his remarks to the scribes and Pharisees, and I want you to notice what happens. Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often, we notice that he, he tried to woo them in the Old Testament, twice, before the captivity, after the captivity. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathered her, gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And now notice carefully, what was the temple when Jesus entered the temple for the final time as the Shekinah glory? It was the temple of God, and Jesus called it what? My house. But now notice the change. Verse 38, see... Your house is left to you what? Desolate. Did we see that word in the Old Testament? We most certainly. And what did, what did uh, their, their abominations lead to? To what? To desolation. By the way, do you know where Jesus went after he left the temple? He went to the same place that the Shekinah went after the uh, Shekinah uh, left the temple in Ezekiel's time. Is this all coincidence? No, it's not coincidence at all. Notice Matthew 24 and verse 1. Matthew 24, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Why was the temple desolate? Because the Shekinah was no longer there. 
Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple, and then Jesus speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Why was Jerusalem destroyed? Because they rejected Jesus. Let's read it in Matthew 24, verses 2 and 3. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat where? Oh, the Shekinah's on the Mount of Olives now. He's forsaken the temple. And so it says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? And then Jesus begins giving his sermon, his famous sermon, on the Mount of Olives. And I want you to notice what Jesus predicted. We'll only read Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. Listen carefully. The two key words that we find in the prophecy of the 70 weeks is contained here in Matthew 24 and verse 15. And then Luke 21 explains what this means. Notice what Jesus says. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, are those words that we found in the Old Testament? Yes. When you see the abomination of desolation, and if you're thinking this has nothing to do with Daniel, Jesus says, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. What Jesus was referring to was the Roman armies had surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They had placed their standards, which had an eagle, in the ground, and they were worshiping their standards. And the interesting thing is that God had told his people, you continue, if you continue reading there in Matthew 24, God has told his people, when you see this sign, the abomination of desolation, make sure you flee the city so that you're not destroyed when the city is destroyed. Was there a work of separation that took place before the city was destroyed? Absolutely. Not one Christian, we're told in great controversy, perished in the destruction of Jerusalem because they had been separated before the destruction came, just like happened in the Old Testament. Now what does this mean when you see the abomination of desolation? It's actually the Roman armies that surrounded Jerusalem. You say, how do we know that? Luke 21 and verse 20. Luke chapter 21 and verse 20. Here Jesus teaches the same thing, but he uses different words. In Matthew he said, when you see the abomination of desolation, but now notice what he says. But when you see Jerusalem, what? Surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. What were those armies that surrounded Jerusalem that gave the signal to those who were inside that they needed to flee in order not to be destroyed? It was the Roman armies. And you say, how could they flee if they had the city surrounded? Well, Josephus tells us that for some unexplained reason, we know what it was, it was God's providence, the Roman armies suddenly left. And the Jews inside the city, they said, hey, this is a signal that God is with us. And they went after the Romans. And the Romans suffered many losses. Do you know what the Christians did when the Romans departed? They all escaped to the mountains of Judea, just like Jesus said. And then the Romans came back, and they destroyed the city, and they destroyed the temple. Are you following what we're studying this morning? It's vital for what we're going to study in our next two lectures. Now notice Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. Now as he drew near, this is at the triumphal entry, he saw the city and wept over it. 
saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you. This is the desolation of Jerusalem to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. For what reason? Because you did not know the what? The time of your visitation. Who had made that visitation? Jesus Christ. Now let me ma make something very clear. God loves the Jews. Even Jews who are unbelieving, God loves them. He loves everyone in this world. When we talk this way, in harmony with Scripture, we're not saying that we should be anti-Jewish. There are many individuals within Judaism that are sincere. They love the Lord. Many of them are becoming Messianic Jews. But we're talking about the end of the Jewish theocracy as God's nation. Not all of the individuals within that nation. Is that clear? There are many sincere individuals within that nation, just like there are many sincere individuals within the Roman Catholic and the Protestant churches that keep the wrong day of the week. And that's why in Revelation, God says to these people, come out of her, my people. So let's review the three stages of Israel's history. The first stage is the first 800 years, from Mount Sinai to the captivity. After that, God says, 70 weeks more, 490 years. Did they shape up? No. When Jesus came, they were oblivious to what his mission was. And so Jesus is sent. This is the last opportunity. Last of all, he sends his son as the last resort. And what do they do? Instead of accepting the son, they arise to destroy him. And what happens with the Jewish theocracy? The Jewish theocracy comes to an end. And now the gospel is to be preached by whom? By the Gentiles to the world. Now allow me to read you a statement near the close of our presentation from Great Controversy, pages 22 and 23. We need to bring this to our day, to our time. Ellen White here says, The great sin of the Jews was their rejection of Christ. The great sin of the Christian world would be the rejection of the law of God, the foundation of his government in heaven and in earth. What was the great sin of the Jews? The rejection of whom? Of Christ. What will be the rejection of the Christian world? God's law. You say, well, they're two different sins. No, they're not. You see, the law of God is a reflection of the character of Christ. It is a written description of Christ in his character. So if you crucify the law, who are you really crucifying? You're crucifying Jesus Christ, because the law is a reflection of Him. Now, I find it very interesting that in the Christian church today, in churches today, you hear statements such as, the law was nailed to the cross, no one can keep it, it was for the Jews, we're not under law, but under grace, we're not under the letter, but under the Spirit, only believe and ye shall be saved. You hear that from the pulpit. But in the political arena, you hear a different too. You hear evangelicals saying, now folks, we need to get the government to establish laws that preserve the uh, sacredness of marriage and the sacredness of life 
and we need to have the government give anti-pornography laws, and we need to post the Ten Commandments in our courtrooms. I thought they were nailed to the cross. This is doublespeak. This is talking out of both sides of your mouth. How can you say in the church, you can't keep the law, you're not under law, you're under grace? It was for the Jews, and then turn it right around and say, Caesar, put the Ten Commandments in your courtrooms and straighten out what we made a mess of. You see, people have listened to their preachers, and they've come to believe what their preachers say. Their preachers say, oh, nobody can keep the law. God doesn't expect you to keep the law. You're saved by grace. And so Christians say, good, I'll go out and live it, live it up, and I'll have my cake, and I will eat it too. Are you understanding me? So the sin of the Jews is no greater than the sin of the Christian world today. And the destruction of Jerusalem has a twofold fulfillment. The disciples asked Jesus two questions. When will these things be the destruction of Jerusalem, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? What happened with the Jewish nation will happen with the Christian world at the end of time as well. Did you understand what we studied this morning? Foundational for what we will study in our next two lectures. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.